One, two, three. Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast. We give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Akela, do you remember 1990? Uh, very vaguely. I was five years old. Well, that's uh, you're very lucky. I unfortunately I'm old enough to remember 1990 in some detail. That was the year that German unification reunification was formally uh, formally formalised. Nelson Mandela was released from prison, and neoliberalism was in full effect um, here in Australia with Prime Minister Bob Hawke as its avatar. And uh, history had ended, according to Francis Fukuyama, and we were in a post-political world of never-ending abundance. Can you imagine how wonderful it was to be alive then? Totally wonderful. Things have just gone downhill. 1991, which we're about to uh, come into, also marks the 30th anniversary of the launch of the Green Left newspaper. Quite an achievement. And today we have Pip Hinman and Susan Price, co-editors of the paper, joining us on the Green Left podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, 2021 marks 30 years of Green Left. Can you tell us about the origins of the paper and how it was first set up? Yeah, well, I'll um, I'll kick it off because I was part of the uh, origin of the Green Left. Um, I guess that was the period um, that the collapse, the Soviet Union had collapsed well and truly. And uh, I guess a lot of us, some of us were working in the predecessor of of Green Left uh, called Direct Action. And uh, we were interested in broadening out the scope of of the discussion that we thought was needed on the progressive left. Um, and I guess the name Green Left encapsulated to us how we thought the, the movement needed to go. So, broadly speaking, the green side of the movement needed to talk more with the left side of the movement and um, and get out of perhaps a bit of a bubble which, uh, you know, existed then. But also on top of that, there was the whole collapse of communism. You couldn't talk about it. It was, a, as you said, you know, that was the end of history. Um, the rest of it, the rest of the propaganda was going on. So. Uh, so, so the idea came about that we launch a new um, paper for the left and progressive movements, which was not specifically a party paper, but nevertheless um, had a core of committed activists ensuring that we come out. And we wanted to involve more people who weren't necessarily identifying per se with an organised part of the left. And so Green Left started up during the Gulf War, Second Gulf War, Uh, with a lot of broader support from activists involved in a range of movements. I've still got my um, Green Left Weekly share, or Green Left share certificate, actually. (laughs) Hang on to that. That could be your your meal ticket uh, into retirement, into into the sunset, Susan. Um, Maybe, Susan, take us back to 1990. What was the media landscape like and and what was the state of left independent media back then? From my recollection, 1990 was a pretty bleak period. Is acceptance of progressive or left-wing ideas greater now than it was back uh, in 1990? Or am I maybe misreading it? Well, I think I think the mood of the time was very much influenced by what had happened in Eastern Europe. And there was a, a bit of a, a kind of collective depression at that time. But, it, but then it's always contradictory because then at the same time, you had the rise of green parties around the world. 
so there was a new new movements forming around, particularly around ecology, and that had its resonance in Australia too. I mean, when Greenleft was launched, it was in the period prior to the formation of the Australian Green Party, where a lot of local experimenting was going on with uh, alliances of ecological, social-minded, humanistic, uh, some former communist activists um, and others who were looking for, I guess, a new way forward for you know, political change um, here. So I think that was why, timing-wise, it was, you know, Green Left was really trying to capture the mood, that mood of the moment. So at the same time, seeking to explain what had gone on in the Soviet Union why why things had ended up the way they had, but also not allowing you know that that event to frame politics for the future. Um, so look, looking to try to to relate to the new movements and in particular to break through what was a very concentrated ownership of media in Australia. I mean, you could actually say nowadays in many ways the mainstream media, capitalist media, is far more concentrated in ownership than it was back then. But back then it was terrible, uh, and you didn't have you didn't have widespread mass use of the internet uh, and social media then either. So news was very filtered through um, the capitalist press. So it, it meant that Green Left played a really important role in trying to be a voice of the unheard. You mentioned mainstream media. Are you feeling that independent publications like Green Left have more responsibility? Does that you feeling greater pressure on you as journalists? Oh, well, everyone's a journalist these days. So, in a way, um, the digital landscape allows us to access a lot more journalism, uh, especially on the, on the spot reports. Yeah, so I think, yeah, I mean, there's two sides of that. Yes, we'd like more resources for investiga- investigative journalism, um, and that's something that a not-for-profit always finds hard. Uh, nevertheless, we have the upside, which is that everyone's a journalist, uh, even if they don't realise it. <laughs> when they're going to things and reporting on things and and, and taking their photos and passing it around the internet. Uh, We're having trouble keeping up with with reporting on all the things that are happening. We're really limited by just by resources (laughs) and uh, capacity to involve more people in the project, actually, which we would certainly like to do because I think think, uh, that's the future. Um, Speaking of um, people becoming involved in the project, Susan, if... If a person was to come across Green Left online or in print and feel like they wanted to write for you or just, you know, be a part of the project, um, how do you get involved? Well, it's actually very simple. <laughs> in fact, every week we get unsolicited contributions from readers, people who've come across Green Left and like what we publish and have an interest in a particular area that they want to write about. We get people who pitch to us ideas for stories. Um, and I guess the other side of it, you know, there's contributions, but at the same time there's other ways that people can support the project. They can write for it, they can also help get it around, whether that's by physically distributing it uh, or sharing it on social media. And I think... The thing that's really what's allowed Greenleft to survive for the last 30 years has actually been a huge fundraising effort by readers, by supporters, um, particularly members of the Socialist Alliance who have you know, really been the backbone of uh, financial fundraising for uh, Greenleft over the three decades. So yeah, attend, even attending, a, say, a comedy 
you know, performance or um, other events that we hold from time to time to raise money for Green Left. I mean, one of the most recent ones we've just done in the last weekend was a fascinating, you know, event in discussion with Bruce Pascoe, the author of Dark Emu. Uh, so these are the sorts of things where people can, you know, be a part of Green Left, uh, whether they want to write for it or just be involved somehow in the project. That's really interesting. And it's obviously uh, the case that you've had to respond to the kind of shifting social and political environment through, through the way in which your paper reaches people. People, do you like to tell us a bit about how you've responded to the changing environments? Uh, yeah, well, podcasting is, is one big aspect of this. Um, we've been trialling uh, podcasts now for a few years and um, some uh, supporters of Green Left also are involved in radio programs. Uh, but um, we are coinciding with our 30th year about to launch, I guess, a new chapter of Green Left, which is you know more consistent podcasting programs in a number of places. So I think this is going to connect with particularly younger people who perhaps find reading huge slabs of text not not necessarily difficult but difficult to fit into their day because you know casual workers generally running from shifts and all sorts of other things in their lives find it hard to perhaps do what we may once have found easier and uh, listening to podcasts both uh, which are chatty or historical or whatever short stories even uh, could be a way of reaching people I mean I think Having said that everyone's a journalist these days, I think there is a big pressure on people to still uh, work out what they're reading. Is it real? Is it not real? I think there's a, there's a big element of that. There's so much that's surreal that goes on and uh, I guess and is reported as fact. And so I guess the other element that Green Left is trying to do, both in the print copy online and podcasts, would be to help people analyse the world as it is to be able to work out what are the next steps for, say, progressive change? I think that's probably where Green Left, you know, comes in, comes in is, is, is something that we treasure and, and keep striving to do because there's a lot of commentary going on. There's, everyone's got a comment, an opinion, whatever. Uh, it's not necessarily grounded, in fact, um, but we're not interested in just reporting that. We're interested in trying to actually also talk to people that are making proposals about next steps. So I guess... Green Left is more than a newspaper or a magazine in that sense. It's trying to be an active agent in supporting progressive change. That's really interesting. Um, And I'd like to hear a bit more about the political projects because it sounds like Green Left is not just a newspaper but has a strong grassroots community focus. And Susan, just wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about what uh, impact Green Left might have had on these movements uh, in the past and and how it engages with grassroots movements? Well, I think part of the project has always been about building the social movements, not just in Australia, but also internationally. And so we've always sought to not just carry news about protests, rallies, that kind of thing, but also debates uh, in the movement. I suppose one probably in the recent past that I think was extremely important because no one else was really talking about it was the critique that was coming through the pages of Green Left and online about the emissions trading schemes discussions going on uh, in Australia um, under particularly the Rudd-Gillard government and the push 
to um, to go to carbon credits and cap and trade schemes. And you know, within the environment movement, there was a real lack of um, debate on the problems with uh, market-based solutions such as emissions trading schemes to taking the you know, urgent action on climate change that was needed. So I think Green Left actually played a really key role in that discussion. And I think too, in connecting activists with, you know, like struggles in different states um, and around the country, linking up grassroots climate action groups with each other. Uh, also refugee, Green Left's played a very important role in keeping the whole question of refugee rights, mandatory detention, you know, in the centre of public awareness. And this was in the in the days when, you know, the, it, there was almost a virtual blackout in the mainstream press on a lot of these issues. I think it's changed now, thankfully. But also building awareness and solidarity with revolutionary and social change struggles internationally. Because, you know, for anyone who consumes mainstream media... To actually find out what's really going on in the world is impossible unless you, you're a bit of a sleuth and can follow up leads yourself. But at Green Left, you know, we've sort of prided ourselves, I think, on bringing the news that the mainstream media won't report to people. And in particular about the revolutionary struggles in Latin America, you know, even the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, which wasn't always as well known and supported as it is today, certainly not by the Australian government, who were who basically accused, you know, figures like Nelson Mandela of being a terrorist at the time when um, when the anti-apartheid movement was happening. Yeah, so I think that's that's actually been a very important role and where we've sought to influence. I guess the test of whether we have had influence is away something that happens in hindsight but we, we're certainly trying to have influence as much as we can over debates discussion of strategy and people's just people's awareness of what's going on out there and all the lessons that can be learned from the various struggles going on across the country and internationally yeah i mean we we've done things like place uh, correspondence in venezuela precisely because there was just no coverage of what was happening there we just thought this is crazy. This is this is there's a revolution unfolding under Hugo Chavez, and the the progressive movement, the English speaking progressive movements, only well, the the ones that weren't following Spanish, uh, were just not aware of what was being pioneered in that country. So you know we had a correspondent there. We had a correspondent in um, South Africa, and we also sent correspondents looking at the first issue of Green Left to Prague as the um, you know as the USSR and affiliates were collapsing. So we really were keen on presenting data. I'm keen on one of those foreign correspondent jobs if there's any going. I mean, I'm ready. I can pack my bags and be on a... I can be at the airport tomorrow if you got West one. Papua, I reckon. That'd be a good place to go. Indeed. <laughs> I wanna, I'll bring it back to the local scene again and ask you about the Greens who are having some, something of a moment. You know, the Greens as they were as they grew from sort of the, the 1990s, they grew out of, I guess, out of, and they still are very much an inner-city demographic. What's your... What's the, the critiques you hear of the Greens from, from the mainstream media, from the right, are always just hysterical nonsense, but the critique of the Greens um, as they stand here today um, from the perspective of Green Left, how are they doing? Let's, let's give them a scorecard. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> not sure. Well, look, I mean, Green Left covers the Greens positively in general. Um, because we share a lot of the same sorts of immediate goals. And the Greens are promoting right now in the climate, in the debate over targets for 2030, the, the Greens are absolutely spot on saying we need net zero emissions from energy by 2030 if we're even going to stick to roughly the roadmap that Paris 
is, is saying we need to. So the, so the Green Left rep- is reporting on what the Greens are saying and doing in, uh, their, and in, their par- in Parliament, uh, sometimes in local council. And we know that, you know, the Greens are a, a bigger movement than just the inner city. Um, sure, yeah. Um, there's actually a lot of people now in regional areas that are supporting the Greens because the Nationals are not re- not at all representing them. So, yeah, uh, I think um, some of us individually probably have um, criticisms of the fact that the Greens sort of just fall short of discussing the system that leads to runaway climate change, that leads to sexism, racism and all the rest of it, capitalism. And that's where Green Left seeks to help people understand why all these crazy idiotic policies are being adopted and what the pressures are on policymakers. But I think in general, as far as transitional demands go in terms of day-to-day politics, I think, you know, we would support a lot of what the Greens are saying and doing. I guess our, our other difference would be that if any of us were in a similar sorts of positions, we would be using those platforms to put a lot more energy and work into building movements on the ground for social change because ultimately you can pass a lot of happy motions in Parliament. Yeah. doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get there. Okay, so I'm just looking at a copy of Green Left right now and at the top on the header it says for eco-socialist action. So I'm wondering um, in the context of the climate crisis we are facing, uh, what do you mean by eco-socialist action and how does the paper uh, facilitate eco-socialist action? Well, you could say that nothing short of an eco-socialist revolution is going to save humanity. I mean, that's really kind of the stakes. They're pretty high. I mean, if you look you know, like looking back at some of the early issues of Green Left, it was, I think it was probably the first English-speaking eco-socialist newspaper. And back in March of 1991, our front cover was The Heat Is On. And it was all about global warming. You know, the IPCC report that was handed down that year, the IPCC had only been in existence for three years at that time. So this was really early days of um, recognition greenhouse gas impacts on climate change and ironically or tragically you know in within that issue we were talking about how George Bush senior and James Baker were trying to block action around climate change in the international summits that were going on at that time and you know here we are today 30 nearly 30 years later with Donald Trump hopefully not in the White House for too long uh you know, having, having completely left the Paris process and in a situation with, where we were talking about global warming of 0.3 to 0.6 degrees Celsius back then, but now we're talking about 1.6 degrees of warming and uh, things are a lot worse and so many wasted, three wasted decades. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess for us, the sort of being very upfront about eco-socialist action is kind of saying actions needed and we see Green Left as being part of building that kind of political movement that's needed to bring about the change and to challenge the power of the fossil interests um, if we're going to save humanity and the planet. Yeah, the stakes are pretty high. Um, what you're saying reminds me of the fam- famous quote by Greta Thunberg we need um, when she's talking about the need for system change because the uh, system is doing what it's uh, meant to be doing, as she says, which is actually the, the capitalist program of environmental exploitation. Pip, I wanted to 
to turn to you, you know, um, about this. You know, as the climate crisis, as Susan said, it's been going on for over 30 years. We've known that things are really bad. Do you feel that the Green Left is more crucial uh, now than ever? Well, I think the vision that we're trying to hold out with that slogan, which may not be, you know, we try and elaborate on it. The eco-socialist action is also trying to paint a vision for something better. It is, that's, the vision is desperately needed. I mean, I think we need 100 more, a million more <laughs> types of green left, if, if you like, um, in all its various incarnations, you know. I mean, we certainly don't think we're the only show in town. We would appreciate it if there was more independent media talking about the same thing, maybe from different angles. Yeah, so in a way, and to answer your question short in a short way, yes, I mean, we feel like we're making a contribution, but it's way short of what's needed. Because realistically, for justice, we have to act. We have to force the rich country governments to act in 10 years. Otherwise, I mean, extinction is already on us. We already know what's happening with the impoverished part of the world, which is the majority of the world. We're living in a bubble in, in, in Australia in terms of living standards and everything else. The left has got a very, is, is very comfortable, you'd have to say, in general. I'm not to say that there aren't a lot of people that are on the breadline and living very badly, but I, th- I, I think we have to keep reminding people in Australia at least that... Um, you know, we, we have, there's a lot at stake, but also we have a lot of, we have moral responsibility as well to do what we can in, in the next few years to force some of the changes because um, it's not us that's going to be inundated or forced to migrate or, or whatever, but, um, you know, we're still going to feel the effects. And so Australia is also one of the biggest contributors to the problem. So per capita, of course, our emissions are very high. We're exporting a lot of coal <coughs> and gas. Gas is now going to be the recovery Export, apparently, um, and so in that sense we have an obligation as well to step up our game. Uh, so Green Left's trying to do that in, in, in every which way that we can, um, not just through the pages, but our reporters, correspondents, supporters are all, a lot of them are involved in movements on the ground, and I think that's, that's the other part of the overall project. Um, we don't just want to report on things, we want to encourage people to also step in and get involved. I... Um I mean, I know I'm going to encounter people in my orbit over the, this holiday period who generally seem to think that, you know, capitalism will solve the problem of the climate crisis. I mean, we already see the capitalist class looking for, for opportunities, you know, everything from greenwashing in an ad campaign to, um, you know, all sorts of, you know, tech solutions to the climate crisis so i just wanted to ask you maybe susan first you know what's some terminology how do you how do you approach that discussion when people say look you know uh yeah i'm on board with this whole global warming thing now and uh because look what these corporations are doing and 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 we can all go back to having lunch how how do you how do you counter that argument i mean i think for a lot of people just going through the experience of the black summer bushfires last year was a real confrontation, a real wake-up call, that uh, we're not immune from the impacts of climate change. I think that did have a big impact on people, particularly in the eastern states. Sure. Um, But, you know, I guess one response to that kind of level of trauma is sometimes to just want to wipe it out of your mind or just pretend that, you know, things can go back to normal and clearly... Clearly they can't. You know, I think we've got to take whatever opportunities we can to have the discussions one-on-one with people we know about the fact that, that corporations, fossil fuel companies will say one thing, you know, give promises that they're going to 
reform themselves, become sustainable. I mean, a lot of them own a lot of the solar technology that is in existence, for example. But what they actually are doing, on the other hand, is finding whatever ways they can to continue to profiteer from the dirtiest, most polluting industries. Okay, maybe not in a really obvious way in the first world, but they sh they're shifting a lot of that onto the global south where it's hidden, you know, where you have governments that are quite happy to do the bidding of um, the big fossil fuel companies, even if it means violently suppressing dissent in those countries. But, you know, this is, this is the thing. I mean, it's so people just aren't aware of this kind of stuff. So I guess the, the most important thing is to be patient, people. But I think that what Pip was saying before about the question of vision is really important because there's, there's an awful lot of bad news out there and there is a tendency for people to want to turn off. So I think that people need a vision for a kind of different future that I think all of us think about. We think about how life could be better for us and our communities. But then what we need is the pathway for how we're going to get to from where things are today to where they need to be, a pathway out of the climate crisis. And that's, you know, these are the sorts of demands that are being raised by the movement today about having, you know, emissions reduction targets that actually are going to have an impact on global warming into the future. You know, um, moving to 100% renewables, uh, moving to, you know, phase out uh, coal and gas um, and transitioning workers, communities in a just way to a different kind of production, different, different sorts of, um, of work. So, you know, I think that's all part of the equation that's hopefully going to convince people in the end. You know, that's what we're seeking to do anyway. Yeah, I think, I think it is an interesting thing to ponder is how, how gullible are people today about green capitalism <laughs> compared to, say, 30 years ago? I'm, I'm shocked at the level of gullibility. Well, I think it's, it probably also relates to people's comfort where I th they're I in think, their lives. Yeah. I think people want to believe. They want to believe yeah. because it's, uh, you know, the, the alternative is, is so horrifying. They, people want to believe they're reaching out for this, you know. Yeah, it, it but then if they read the science, you see the scientists who are hardly radicals, mm. scientists are scientists, yeah. they're saying we have to shift dramatically. Mm. So you read the science and then you compare that with the, the policy and there's just a complete, you know, there's no yeah. connection there at all. So, I mean, the, the problem I think we do face is that, you know, it is, green capitalism is all around us. It's on the ABC, it's everywhere mm. you look. All the progressives are green capitalists. Yeah, you know, that's that's the mainstream idea now. Mainstream progressive idea is green capitalism. So yep. we have to think for green left. How do we both uh, dissect that? Yeah. Without looking completely off mm. the planet, so, so to speak. What we're trying to do is explain that it's not down to you or me, recycling better or exactly. getting rid of our cars or yep. putting rooftop solar on all the things that I'd like to do but can't afford. Uh, it's actually a system issue, and therefore we have to talk about the system. Yeah, I have on a little of paper the top 20 pollu uh, polluting companies in the world and sometimes I take it to family gatherings and you know. Oh that must make you really popular. <laughs> no I mean I, I'm using it in defence you know it's, it's like okay look you know let's get off this uh, you know recycling used by the right light globes thing people well, these are the this is what we really need to be talking about. To be to be fair as well the environment movement such as we know it is so small yet in Australia mm. to be so a lot of people that would like to get involved can't see the entry point they yeah. don't know where to go how do you get involved I mean the high school students when they were mobilizing 
They, were give, they gave people an entry point and you could see immediately mums, dads, aunties, uncles, grandparents, everybody came along to support them. They, they saw the entry point and they joined in. You know, I do think that the progressive green left in this country is still too small and that is a pressure on us all the time. We feel it all the time. And uh, I guess getting back to part of the role of green left is to be able to explain some of these things, not in a tut-tut-tut sort of way, exactly. but as an, in an involving you too can be a part of you know, the change. That's right, the solution. <laughs> Capitalism's always going to find ways to, you know, to claim the language or the imagery. I mean, they've been doing that for a long time. I want to um, ask you guys about labour, organised labour. I, I recall the early 90s as the final kind of disassembling of, of labour power in Australia. So I guess I wanted to ask both of you, where are we at now? Are there any good left-wing unions doing good work and are they, uh, is Green Left a mouthpiece for them? Yeah, I think we've always tr- tried to seek out and amplify the voices of the militant wing of the trade union movement in Australia. And also, I guess, to, to draw out some of the lessons of that period of, of, the, of the Accord years and during the 80s in particular, which, you know, by the early 90s when we saw the amalgamations of unions going on and led to the weak position of organised labour today, that whole process. But that's that's probably a topic for a whole other discussion. So, yeah, I think we've always been very conscious of reaching out to, collaborating with and encouraging, encouraging that wing to grow and to become more influential in the trade union movement. I suppose, I mean, you, you know, you can certainly look back through the pages of Green Left to some of the interviews that we've done with union figures. Some people who are currently in the leadership of the Maritime Union who are involved in a, a very progressive rank and file grouping within the Maritime Union back during the early, was it the late 1990s? That's, um, the, that's the MUA, right? Yes, the MUA, the Maritime Union of Australia. Uh, figures like Craig Johnson, who led a rank-and-file grouping within the Manufacturing Workers' Union, the AMWU, and actually they went on to win the leadership of the Victorian branch of the AMWU. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think Green Left has, has always tried... You know, we see that that's part of our role, is we want to be where unionists are organising. Um, we were certainly very much uh, saw ourselves as pushing the whole Your Rights at Work campaign in the lead-up to the 2007 election. In saying that, we, not only in promoting what the ACTU and other trades and labour councils were doing at the time, but also running or hosting debate and discussion within the pages of the paper about strategy. And it was quite, you know, often at times very critical of what the ACTU were doing, but allowed the voices of the most militant forces within the union movement at the time to actually have a say. And, and many of those forces actually did push that campaign much further than it was prepared to go. And it was certainly a very important time, I think, in, in uh, Australia's trade union history, that, um, that period during that campaign. And we sought to, wherever we could, help build industrial action, strikes, mass meetings, to be as democratic, as open, to have as much influence as possible over decisions that were being made about what to do next in that campaign. It is much harder now, of course. When you look at the wages and profit share graph that we published recently, because we're, we're, we are graphicising that, 
you know, it's phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Tell um, us a bit more about that. Wages share of GDP is, a, is, is going down rapidly right. and uh, profit share is going up right. dramatically. So the, the graph is quite dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find it on the website of Greenleft. And I guess um, alongside of the wages share going down, you actually see corresponding union decline, decline in un- organised unions. And so it is much, much harder for those, you know, active unionists to both work and organise workplaces and organise against yeah, all the anti-union laws that are coming forward. So we are doing our best to mm-hmm. try and link up with those people that are still organising. One of the uh, things that really impressed me about Green Left when I first uh, had a look at it was uh, the focus on um, international movements around the world. And I just wanted to ask you a question about international solidarity and What's the role uh, Green Lamp has played in, in supporting national liberation movements? I mean, I think the um, I think Green Left has been critical. We were talking earlier about um, the fact that the mainstream media, you know, in reporting events, world events, you know, it's all very shallow, and you don't really find out very much from uh, from reading or listening to mainstream media. But I guess in its early days, in the well, in the sort of late 1980s, the struggle for East Timor was uh, going on, and Green Left was very active uh, in giving support to the forces within Timor who were who were struggling against Indonesian occupation, uh, an independent nation, and but also to the broader international solidarity movement of people living in exile and their supporters, particularly in Australia and throughout the world, who were in solidarity with that campaign. So, you know, we took a position from the start that East Timor, the East Timorese had a right to self-determination and to be free of uh, occupation by Indonesia. And I think that the fact that the Australian government was so involved in giving support to Indonesia to continue that occupation was uh, part of that, but um, also that it basically green-lighted Indonesia's invasion of East Timor back in the 1970s. Um, so, yeah, I guess that, that was one of the key struggles that we promoted very heavily. And a lot of our writers and supporters were quite centrally involved in the uh, Timorese campaign, including Pip and myself in different cities at the time. Um, and I suppose more recently, uh, certainly we've had all the Latin American, uh, the Pink Tide uh, governments and uh, the fact that you know we've we've sent people to places like Venezuela to cover those movements which you know you could say are also about national liberation and national sovereignty against imperialist domination you know they've been critical critical struggles for us to support and in the more recent times um, we've spent a lot of pages and space promoting and writing about educating ourselves and others about the process going on in Rojava in northern Syria, which is really under pressure at the moment because Turkey's invaded that region now and is trying to completely crush that process. So that, that's been another, I think, important part of the world for us to try to bring to people in Australia. Yeah, well, I, I agree with that. I think, um, I think strangely for... A rich capitalist country, well, not maybe not strangely for a rich capitalist country like Australia, a lot of political people can see politics in another country unfold, whereas they find it harder to see it happening here. So, for instance, you know, the East Timor drew in the struggle 
by these Timorese drew in to the movement here um, a lot of younger people. They could see how, how, how draconian not just the Indonesian forces were, but the Australian government was sitting on its hands. And so, you know, from the point of view of, you know, we felt it was our duty to support, and it was, to support the Timorese in their just struggle for self-determination. Um, we could also see that it was part of involving more people in the struggle here. And, um, of course, you know, that same thing probably applies to the current struggles of West Papua. A lot of young people in Australia looking at West Papua thinking, what the hell is going on there? Why can't these people just fly their flag? So uh, I think, you know, uh, that's, one of the, one of, that's an element too for us that um, often people coming into politics will see struggles overseas and relate to that. I mean, we, we tend to view democratic, we, we view national self-determination struggles as part of overall struggle for democracy. And so a lot of people relate to basic democratic rights and, and uh, less so about whether a national movement, National Movement for Independence, has the absolutely correct program and is following it. That is refreshing to, you know, the fact that there's a new generation of people who are looking beyond, you know, purity and just looking at people's basic struggles and, and, and why can't they achieve even even a, a shadow of what we, what we enjoy here. Well, um, we might move towards a conclusion here. It's been a fantastic chat. Now, 30 years is an amazing achievement in any endeavour, let alone trying to uh, run a newspaper and, and cover all these um, vitally important stories, both, both here and overseas. Absolutely amazing achievement and, and, uh, and huge props to you, you and your crew, uh, Pip and it's Susan. a lot of crew over the 30 years. I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, now, you have a social media promotion you, you, we're, that is, yes. we're getting up and running. Do you want to tell us about that? Yes, well, we're asking people to send us some happy birthday messages. So we've set up a hashtag called green, hashtag GreenLeft30, not too complicated, and we're asking uh, readers, supporters out there to record a little message, uh, use the hashtag, post it to your social media feed, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, take a little photo of yourself and in the latest uh, issue of GreenLeft we've even included a poster that you can hold and get someone to take a picky of you and then you can send us a picture if you'd like to along with your message uh, just telling us what green left means to you and uh, we'll try and publish as many of them as we can and share them around on social media okay so it's hashtag green left 30 hashtag green left 30 you can send via the it website via email if you like to editor at greenleft.org.au or post it on twitter using the hashtag or facebook using the hashtag and we'll Collected. Fantastic. Thanks again for all the work you do, and uh, and here's to another another thirty years. Um, so we'll sign off now from the Green Left podcast. Thank you, Markella. Thanks, James and Markella. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for five dollars a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.